0: city streets and the quiet town boulevards the scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation here you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations
1: funeral held for a 29-year boston veteran police officer who died of coronavirus one cop killed, two others critically wounded while responding to a domestic disturbance in Texas. Omaha officer seriously injured by a dog while responding to a 911 call. These are just some of the headlines over the past 24 hours involving police officers. I doubt these surprise anyone. We all know how dangerous being a cop is. We don't all know about some of the hidden dangers, though. Post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, even suicide. 228 American police officers died by suicide in 2019, up 24% from just a year ago. This is more than all other line of duty deaths combined. Today's guest is well aware of both the rewards and the risk associated with a career in law enforcement and is here to help us understand police psychology, trauma, and how cops cope. Welcome to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic clinical psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show. I'd like to welcome Dr. Ellen Kirschman, a police psychologist, volunteer at the First Responder Support Network, and author of I Love a Cop, What Police Families Need to Know. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Glad to be here. We're delighted to have you. And I just wanted to start out getting your thoughts about why are suicide rates increasing among police officers. The statistic that I like to use is that
2: cops are twice as likely to kill themselves as they are to be killed in the line of duty and this is alarming considering that Most police officers have been very carefully screened before they got their jobs. You just don't walk into a police department and say, I like to work here. You have a background check, a psych evaluation, just a whole bunch of hoops that you have to jump through. So this is alarming. Why there is more now than there has been in the past could be. It's not being hidden to the degree it was hidden earlier. And there are a number of reasons why somebody might hide a suicide One that comes to mind immediately is that the family wouldn't get benefits or there's shame involved. So we think that while policing has gotten safer, the suicide rate has gone up and it may be a function of reporting. It's also uh, maybe a function of the fact that in our culture, the police go through periods of being venerated and being hated. And uh, we have recently gone through a period where There were a number of assassinations and attacks on police. And now I think in the middle of this pandemic, we see them being venerated for their courage and bravery.
1: That's interesting that you say there have been waves throughout history of different views of police officers. I know growing up, I just thought police officers were superheroes. And my parents would often tell us, hey, if you ever get in trouble, you need to call a police officer because, you know, you can trust them. And then you're right. I think that over the past few years, we have definitely seen some publicity focusing on police officers. That's been very, very negative. Why is that that we see this swing back and forth?
2: I I guess that depends on lots of things that happen in in the world around us, not necessarily always caused by the police themselves. I've been doing this work for almost 35 years, so I went through the 60s. I grew up, as you did, um, always being told to respect a police officer, to know that if I was lost or in trouble, I should go to a police officer. And then things changed, of course, in the 60s. And it depends on who you are and what community that you live in. I think that communities of color have a very different view of, of law enforcement than do other people who live in white communities or communities that have had less social challenges.
1: Yeah, I, I could certainly understand that. I definitely think that different communities have different experiences. And of course, each officer is an individual. And I think, unfortunately, police officers are not alone in that when you're in a profession where you wear a uniform it's very easy for individuals, I think, or the media to lump everybody into the same group. I agree that uh, to the public, all
2: police officers look alike, but they don't look alike to each other.
1: Absolutely. And you know, I'll be the first to say that in spite of some of the negative media attention, my personal interactions and professional interactions with police officers has always been really positive. I'm not saying that's true for everyone, but it certainly has been been true for me. I think it's interesting that you talked about the fact that perhaps this increase in suicide rates that we're seeing among police officers may partly be due to the fact that there's more reporting or acknowledgement that these things happen. And I think that's definitely true. I also think that... It's a stressful, stressful job. And so how do you typically come in to see somebody in the police department? I work independently in a private practice. So I'm basically a consultant.
2: I would be paid to come in. One organization I was with for 25 years, I was there. I had an office right on the flight path between the locker room and the briefing room, which is unusual. But they hired me to be there and become part of the organization. So people could drop into my office and talk to me if they wanted to, or if there was a particular incident that happened, a critical incident on the street, then I would be there to hold a debriefing and to talk to the officers or the dispatchers who were involved. also did a lot of management consultation because we know that Organizational stress far exceeds line of duty stress for most police officers. They expect the bad guys to give them trouble and come after them. What they don't expect is to have their organization turn on them or let them down.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the line of duty stress first. Looking back at all the years you've worked with law enforcement, what would you say the top line of duty stressors are? Anything involving
2: children. So any time that a child is injured or killed or brutalized in some way, this really affects officers, and it does so because their usual way of coping with stress just doesn't work with kids. Take humor, for example. There is absolutely nothing funny and no way to make a joke about a child who has been murdered or assaulted most cops have children of their own so that the incident itself can come very close to their own personal life and they can really identify with the child or with the grieving parents there's no way to blame a child for their own misfortune if you are killed because mom or dad is driving drunk and hasn't put on your safety belt, there, there's no way to blame the child for that. But when adults hurt each other, then uh, we can all rationalize to ourselves and say, well, that person put themselves
1: in harm's way. You can't say that when a child's involved. And so how do police officers cope when they see a child who's been maybe killed by a parent or a result of a parent's negligence?
2: Well, it depends on what kind of coping skills they have. I think the best way, of course, to be coping is to talk to somebody about your feelings. And that's why we have these debriefings after uh, an event that we know has got to have upset the officers involved. So talking to another officer, talking to a peer supporter is a really good way of coping Sucking it up and pretending you don't feel what you feel or feeling ashamed of yourself for having those feelings because you think nobody else is, which is most likely not true, by the way, uh, is a maladaptive way of coping. A lot of times just going home and hugging your own children and making sure they're safe is a good way of coping. Going home and telling your children they may never leave uh, the house without a parent if they're 14 or 15 years old, uh, or worrying about them, or becoming overly restricted because you know in this, the whole world of uh, what most of us think of as a world of possibility. I think cops seem so much trauma that they think of it as a world of probability. So you can become overly restrictive with your family. That's not a good way of coping and drinking too much or taking it out on somebody else is not good. So that's why we have peer support programs. That's why we have chaplaincy programs. That's why we really encourage and try to normalize taking care of these incidents because they just build up over time for an officer. And then finally something happens and uh, they just tilt and they wonder why this last thing that happened is causing them to have post-traumatic stress injury. And we say it isn't the last. It's the fact that you've been doing this for five years and you've got a whole bunch of others that haven't been processed.
1: I've done quite a bit of reading on cumulative post-traumatic stress versus you know, one-time exposure to a life-threatening event. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because I can't imagine many more professions that would expose someone to these cumulative stresses than a police officer. One of my favorite quotes is from a retired highway
2: patrol officer who refers to those events as soul woundings. They just build up over time. And sometimes for him, it was a failure to be somewhere or to do something or just to be exposed to people in pain. It doesn't have to be something dramatic like you see on television. It's just coming to terms with the fact that you're a limited human being Cops are pretty hard on themselves, and I think, you know, they do an awful lot of self-blame and hold themselves sometimes to impossible standards. The way I like to to say that, Joni, is that the cops have a certain set of beliefs, uh, a belief that they can fix problems, that they can... um, Uh, be exposed to terribly gruesome or stressful incidents and keep going that they people are better off for them having been there but of course that doesn't always happen and when that doesn't always happen they very often can turn on themselves and blame themselves like if I had only turned left instead of right if I had gone two minutes faster that child would still be alive or that person would still be
1: alive And I'm wondering how those beliefs might make it difficult to get help. Well, they
2: make it very difficult to get help. I think that when cops believe themselves to be problem solvers, that they also believe they should never have problems of their own. So that seeking help to many officers makes them feel ashamed and that makes them feel like they're weak. And if somebody finds out that they've needed some help, that nobody's going to want to work with them again, or they won't be trusted as reliable. Part of what is changing recently is I think we have begun, in some places, at any rate, to get that message across, that it is really normal and it's cop's responsibility to make sure that he or she takes care of themselves emotionally as well as physically. And that these um, things they're exposed to actually take a toll unless they are processed and not allowed to build up and fester.
1: What kind of signs, symptoms, behaviors might be an indicator that it's the time to talk to somebody?
2: Well, there's a whole bunch of symptoms like having nightmares, being preoccupied with a particular incident, a change in habits like drinking more than you used to or sleeping more. I tell people, ask your family, do you have a short fuse? Are you more irritable than you used to be? Have you changed in some way? Depression? Are you hating coming to work? Are you feeling angry all the time? Are you highly reactive? Do you have a bunch of medical problems without any medical explanation? It's a long, long list of various symptoms. And we're trying to train clinicians to recognize these uh, sorts of symptoms in police officers.
1: I can certainly see that'd be helpful. not only in terms of helping the clinician understand how to best approach that person, but to help that police officer feel like that clinician could really understand where he or she was coming from. Absolutely.
2: Because we heard some, a lot of stories. For example, an officer we know had been involved in two officer-involved shootings and was beset with nightmares and was feeling like his career was over. He could not possibly take a chance that this might happen again. Went to see a clinician and the clinician said to him at the first visit, so are you ready to give up being a trained killer? which is an absolutely horrible and insulting thing to do. And of course you can imagine that a police officer didn't go back to see that therapist again, but was also turned off to therapy entirely. So one of the things that we are hoping for culturally competent clinicians is that they understand the police culture and that they are themselves free of any bias towards law enforcement.
1: So certainly I think clinicians do, if they are going to work with police officers, need to understand the culture and the background for sure. Here's a tough one, I think, and I'll start by sharing something that happened to me years ago as a psychologist. I was just at a graduate school and was working with a bunch of other clinicians and we had a woman who was a social worker who came to work and she was pregnant and was exhibiting some very serious mental health symptoms ironically, the only person to really pick up on this was our receptionist, who was not a clinician. And she came to the back and was saying to us, there's something wrong with this person. I don't know what's going on. And, And we, of course, were like, no, she's fine. And we were all kind of in denial. And it became very apparent that she was not fine. And there's a happy ending to the story. But I think what it brought home to me was how hard it can be sometimes to recognize when somebody that you're close to or you don't expect to be struggling is struggling. And also what to do about it. Because I think we were all thinking, well, we don't want to, you know, call emergency services about our colleague. Is this going to have implications for her career long term, et cetera? I can't imagine what it'd be like to be a police officer and have your partner that you think is really in trouble psychologically and then yet not know what to do to try to get that person to get help.
2: That's a huge problem because of the stigma around seeking uh, mental health help. The police psychologists, people who work in the way that I do, are always preaching to police officers that losing a job is not nearly as important as losing your life. And if people are afraid to turn in quotes, I'm making air quotes with my hands here, turn in a fellow officer because, for example, they think they're suicidal. They're afraid that the officer will then lose their weapon and then they won't be able to work anymore. Well, that is a much lesser consideration than trying to save an individual's life because we know that people do, can be suicidal and then be, uh, can be treated for depression and then just be fine again. And the cops are incredibly worried about confidentiality. That's one of the things that makes them so apprehensive about getting help. A place that I mentioned I worked for 25 years, I think the day I left, Joni, there were still people in that department that thought I had a video camera that went right up to the chief's office. So there is some part of learning to be a cop and learning to be suspicious and skeptical and cynical for some people is what really prevents them from getting help because they cannot believe that there is any confidentiality or they won't somehow be ex- be exposed for having said that they were having problems. The same thing would be true for somebody you knew was drinking too much or um, maybe having some unethical behavior. It's a... Uh, because of this sort of weave mentality that builds up over time, cops think that they can only rely on each other. No one else will understand them or have
1: empathy for them. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Ellen Kirschman on police psychology, trauma, and how cops cope.
0: Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health.
1: So what kind of agency or law enforcement organizations support do you see for police officers getting help?
2: Well, I think we see more normalization of this. And we see more departments that either the large urban departments may help, will have their own behavioral science units in which there are culturally competent therapists who can be there to help officers and their families. And they're also part of the organization. They might be teaching something or part of the field training program. So they they become familiar, trusted people. I think that helps a lot. For the smaller, less well-resourced agencies, they may have a relationship with a community therapist who also understands the police culture or is familiar with that particular agency.
1: I know you said that people come voluntarily to see you, and ideally that would always be the case, but I would imagine with just some of the stigma that's still there, that there may be times when people have to come see you.
2: Well, there are times when it is appropriate to make mandatory referral, and there are a couple of ways that happens. One is when it is required that an officer have what's called a fitness for duty evaluation. And this is a very complex, very in-depth look at an individual. But it has to be generated by some observable behavioral problem. Uh, There has to be a really well-articulated reason to ask for Fitness for Duty. In some agencies, if, if an officer was involved in a shooting... That would be a reason to uh, mandate a fitness for duty. But that really is not uh, a proper way of going about things because being involved in shooting can be part of an officer's job. The question is, was there some behavioral issues or ethical issues that other reasons that can be articulated that other than the officer was just there and experienced that? A fitness for duty takes a very long time. It involves a lot of collaborative interviews with supervisors, colleagues, as well as a lot of testing. And in that case, when it is a fitness for duty, the client is not the officer. The client is the organization that has requested the fitness for duty. Therefore, there is no confidentiality.
1: And so, Ellen, help me be specific here. Tell me a couple of hypothetical, but realistic examples of would be an appropriate fitness for duty evaluation. I could certainly see how just because somebody has been involved in a shooting that, you know, if they're sent for a fitness for duty evaluation, just because of that, that could be an inappropriate referral and it could be perceived as a punishment for an action that might be justified. But what would be some examples of things that you would kind of go, yeah, this really is an appropriate referral. Let's say
2: that somebody, uh, there's been a smell of alcohol on this person. And so there's some suspicion that he or she is an alcoholic and is drinking and it's impairing their work. Or if somebody was uh, overly aggressive with a citizen, and got a citizen's complaint that was not a bogus complaint. You know, people don't like it when you lock them up and send them to jail so they can complain. But something that was a legitimate complaint about uh, too excessive force on an incident, those kinds of things that are somewhat egregious. An officer begins to exhibit some signs of mental illness that would be pretty unusual, but we see them perhaps becoming paranoid that may require a fitness for duty. Now, there are other kinds of mandated counseling sessions that are not as serious as fitness for duty, because with fitness for duty, the potential is you may be found unfit, and therefore you can't work. There may be other times when a supervisor might see that an officer was in like a really bad mood for a long time, whether they understood that this officer was going through a very contentious divorce and it was interfering with their ability to work and then mandate them to get some counseling. But in this case, all the reporting that needs to be done from the counselor is that the individual did show up and keep their appointments, not what they said while they were talking to the therapist.
1: Sure. So just saying this person did show up, they are participating in therapy, and that right. would be enough. And I'm certainly familiar with that in a work-related setting as well. You mentioned officers who've been involved in shootings, and I would imagine that no matter what the situation is, that would be pretty stressful.
2: Well, it is, it is stressful, and it can be stressful for a number of reasons. And we expect that most officers who have been involved in a shooting will display some kind of Symptoms for oh, ten days to two weeks after. You know, largely because you know, physiologically they are absolutely jacked up to the max usually, and so they've got this sort of adrenal overload, and that they will be preoccupied with the event, uh, really scared about what this means to their career, uh, wondering uh, if they did the right thing. So there's a lot of that kind of back and forth preoccupation after a a shooting. You've had a close brush with death. So this is frightening and may give you some pause about, well, what's going to happen the next time this happens? Will I overreact? Will I underreact? Also, people will have all kinds of perceptual difficulties, things like auditory shutdown. Something sounded like a cap gun, but if you were in the firing range, you'd need to have earmuffs on it so loud. Uh, time slows down or speeds up. People get tunnel vision. All of these things are hardwired into, into us that haven't changed any since cave person days. And it's when you feel that your survival is is threatened. So it takes a while for the body to spill all of those neurochemicals out and for you to reset and settle down again. may have nightmares or inability to sleep, a real short fuse with your family. We call it post-traumatic stress injury because a disorder sounds like a life sentence and we know that people will recover from these things. So it doesn't become a major mental health issue that interferes with your ability to function at work and at home generally until 30 days have passed and and you're still highly symptomatic. And as you know, in some cases, there can be a delayed onset of that. You manage to keep a lid on it and then something else happens six months down the road and the lid blows off.
1: So I would imagine that at least part of your job would be to, educate law enforcement officers maybe in advance of what a normal reaction to being involved in a shooting is
2: totally that's a big part of my job and uh, that has to be done forewarned is forearmed and you can't just do this once you've got to do it at intervals stress management issues If they're taught in the academy, the officers are, number one, so young, they feel somewhat invulnerable. You know, this will never happen to me, right? Happened to that person, but I'm going to do it differently. Or they just don't have the road experience, so they can't relate. Give them a couple of years on the job, and now they understand what it means to be exposed to people in pain, to be exposed to gruesome sights to feel like you weren't the person you thought you could be under these circumstances because you were frightened and you never expect you were going to ever be frightened, that kind of thing. So the training needs to happen again over and over again because people
1: forget. You know, one of the things that really has stood out for me over the past couple of years has just been the second guessing that goes on oftentimes in the media or in the public when there has been a shooting, whether it's a mass shooting, whether it's an officer-involved shooting. And I just wonder what the impact is. One that really stands out for me is the Parkland High School Mm -hmm. shooting. Mm -hmm. The deputy was criticized and really vilified Mm -hmm. for what was perceived to be his lack of action at the time. And I just wondered, from from an insider perspective, as somebody who works with, with police officers, how they deal with this.
2: I wrote a blog about that very incident and the way that this man became a scapegoat before anybody knew what happened and how we can all pretend we think we we know how we are going to react under extreme stress, but you never know how you will be until it actually happens. That brings up A very important issue, Joni, that doesn't often get talked about. One of the things that makes stress for a police officer worse, and we find this involved with, I would say, 95% of of all cases of extreme stress is a sense of betrayal. And that officer in the Parkland shooting was totally betrayed when his superior officer, his chief, just threw him under the bus without any understanding of actually what had happened or what the circumstances were. So betrayal comes in three different packages. You can get organizational betrayal You can get personal betrayal. Your partner wasn't there when they said they would be. Your wife runs off with uh, the milkman. Or there can be an administrative betrayal, which we find with workers' comp a lot. It's not personal, but it's a horrible bureaucracy that pays no attention to your injuries. But when you get this organizational betrayal or community betrayal, when the community you've been working in and trying to protect turns on you, that that is absolutely devastating. But when you're hired, the message is come join us. We're a big blue family. We got your back. You'll be part of this. But organizations are interested in their own survival. They're not interested in the survival of individuals. So if those two things don't match, the organization is going to make sure it survives and it will take the individual and toss them aside. Or treat them badly, and that kind of betrayal, we see. So there's lots of examples of that. The Parkland, uh, the Parkland uh, massacre was certainly a really a good example. Um, giving your name out to the press, telling an officer to please write a, an apology letter to the family of a man who tried to shoot and kill this officer because the chief thought that might help them avoid. Uh, some kind of a civil rights lawsuit. Uh,
1: you know, in a weird kind of way, it reminds me of of kids who've been abused. Because early on, when I was working with kids, I found that they would have this primary trauma, which was the abuse—sexual abuse, physical abuse, or whatever—and yet it often seemed like the way a parent responded when the abuse was disclosed had such an impact on that child's recovery, meaning no matter what the abuse was, when that parent found out about it, if a parent was supportive and wrapped their arms around this child and supported this child, it wasn't that the primary trauma didn't happen, but it went a long way toward helping that child begin to heal. And when you had a parent who, for example, a child came and said, your boyfriend is doing A, B, and C. And either said you're lying or essentially chose the boyfriend over the child. That secondary trauma, in some respects, Ellen seemed worse
2: Mm -hmm.
1: in terms of that child. That's what it sounds like I'm hearing in a way, what you're Mm -hmm. saying that some of these officers experience if they feel like their organization in a time of crisis already throws them under the bus.
2: Uh, It was at this retreat where we take officers and sometimes we have firefighters or dispatchers too. And they're all exhibiting symptoms of post-traumatic stress injury. And there was a very, very angry officer in this group of people. This officer that I'm talking about got very angry at me for something I said, which was fairly innocent. But he kind of misunderstood what I meant and felt that I had offended him. And he was actually so angry that when we were in this debriefing circle, he came out of his chair as though he was going to attack me, and a couple of other officers came over and pushed him down and then sat next to me. So in thinking this through, I finally said to him, I apologized. I made a really strong effort to... Acknowledged to him the, the ways in which I had offended him. It was never my intention to offend him, but, you know, matter what your intentions are, if you offend somebody, you have to take responsibility for that. So I really did. And when I was finished talking, he started to cry. And he said to me, no one has ever apologized to me for anything in my life. So I'm relating to what you said, I think that the way that sometimes if just 75 words could make the difference if officers were treated with more compassion by their organizations. And frankly, a lot of the work that I've done is to help the administration become more compassionate towards the line officers. There was an officer who, in this case, an be a female who went to, was called to the scene of a teenager who had hung himself, and it just so happened that her nephew, also a teenager, had hung himself in the previous month, and she became emotional. She started to cry at the scene, but she, you know, she took care of what she needed to take care of. Somehow this got back to the chief and the chief called me into his office and said, I have to send her for a fitness for duty evaluation because she cried. And I said, absolutely not. That's going to make everything worse. What you really need to do is to go down to the A-level floor where she was and, and tell her you heard that she was upset at the scene and ask her to tell you what happened and tell her you feel so, You're so sorry to learn about her nephew and
1: just handle this like two human beings instead of always doing a CYA. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Ellen Kirschman on police psychology, trauma, and how cops cope.
0: americaoutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all as we
1: celebrate our four-year anniversary thank you for making it all possible well should it news deliver truth and inspire us to reach higher with blogs
0: podcast video and 24 7 talk radio on our free apps on apple android or alexa We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome
1: back to Threat of Evidence. I want to spend some time talking about the impact of law enforcement careers on families. What are your thoughts, or what are you seeing in terms of the impact of the coronavirus on police officers? Well, Well. It's
2: having a huge impact on, on police officers, and of course the officers and their families are really very concerned that because the officers cannot shelter in place and have this exposure and not always have the right protective gear on, that they're going to transmit something to home. So there's a lot of concern about the transmission. There is a lot of concern about having physical contact or close proximity, of course, to people in the, in the public. And I see lots and lots of things are coming over my desk about departments warning their officers that unless somebody is creating an imminent grave uh, danger of death or bodily injury to the citizen or to the officer, don't touch try to handle these things without physical contact. Also, we have these shelter in place rules that officers may have to be like citing people or arresting people. And then this is very difficult because sometimes the people who are most apt to be violating these rules are people who are impoverished and feel like they must go to work. So then the officer is faced with a particular dilemma. It's huge.
1: It is. I mean, I can not only imagine that. I mean, just in my community, there are people who are going to the grocery store wearing masks. There are people who don't want to wear masks. There are now security guards who are in grocery stores who are charged with going up and telling people who don't have a mask to leave. And there's arguments. And then, of course, you bring an even more important point, which is people who can't stay home. Mm-hmm. have to ride the subway, have to do you know A, B, or C, and yet they may not have the equipment they need or a mask or whatever. So it's just a whole new territory. Because
2: police officers feel that they are problem solvers and that they can handle problems, this is so much beyond uh, what a police officer can handle so that there are ways in which they're feeling helpless, questioning their identity, feeling like they have to restrain themselves too much, that they should be out there doing something more action-oriented, but they can't. So it, it's causing a lot of sort of psychological turmoil. And I, I think that my colleagues are out there working as hard as they can to try to be supportive and to help police officers understand why they may be feeling so conflicted about what's going on. And why they might be feeling like they're out of control or they're helpless, because this situation is way bigger than the police can handle.
1: It sure is. So let's talk about the impact of being a police officer or that profession that you see on some of the families.
2: You talked about the children with the secondary issues, the children who have been abused and traumatized. One of the things that we find in police officers who are at risk for trauma, although we don't have any hard and fast science on this, but many people become police officers because they have some experience in their own childhoods. Either they come from a family that may be dysfunctional, there may be an alcoholic parent uh, or a parent who was disabled in some way, or there was a lot of poverty, but there was something in that the officer as a child became prematurely adult, that they were really in charge of the family because their parents were unable to be parents for some reason or another. Going into police work is because they have become comfortable with chaos early in life. For some, if they've been seriously abused, they want to prevent somebody else from being abused. They want to be able to master taking care of themselves, but they don't want what happened to them to happen to anybody else. So it's a kind of a natural segue into, into law enforcement and it works just fine. And it's really, in some ways, really good preparation until something bad happens on the job. And then that can revive that early feeling of being helpless or alone or um, at the mercy of a very demanding, critical parent. And that's where you can see that organizational betrayal. Also, it sort of repeats the betrayal that there was in the early family of origin. And we we point this out very often uh, when doing some therapy with an officer, perhaps after a critical incident, or perhaps they've just been uncomfortable and they're seeking therapy, uh, or there's been a, a, a spouse who has said, look, you've got to get fixed or I'm out of here. So there's been some precipitating incident, and we have to make this connection for them. And when we do, it's really very powerful for them to see that. So, for example, dealing with an officer who had, had terrible feelings of inferiority which, as a result of being probably the the son of a i presume his mother had some serious mental health problems maybe even schizophrenia and the way she abused him and humiliated him and when something similar to that happened to him on the job he never made the connection that he was feeling this kind of shame and humiliation as an adult that he had already experienced as a child and also feeling alone and helpless. Another example was of an officer who was in the middle of a really catastrophic natural event, no bad guys involved here, and felt as though he had been abandoned and his life was in jeopardy and his his fellow officers were nowhere to be seen. I think anybody would feel upset uh, under those circumstances, but this really got to the level of a post-traumatic stress injury because it was interfering with his ability to function at home and at work. And we asked him, had he ever felt that kind of helplessness before? And it turns out that he said, no, not really. And then he's mentioned something about his grades not being very good in school when he was in the sixth or seventh grade and we asked him why that was. And he said, well, it was his parents went on the road for a year and left him home alone. And he never never connected. Number one, he didn't think there was anything wrong with it because he was able to feed himself and take care of himself because as I said, he was prematurely adult. Another officer I dealt with who had a a terrible incident of work involving a theft and a shooting and that sort of fell apart and didn't think he could keep being a cop. And we're talking and he described how every Friday in his life, his father would come home drunk because he got it was payday and he got was drunk and throw all the furniture out on the front lawn. And I said to this officer, that's really abnormal. That's not the way families are supposed to function. And he couldn't understand that. He thought that was the way things were supposed to be. And again, once he made this connection, then we could clear up some of his more current reactions to what had happened to him on the job.
1: It sounds like some of the same qualities and life experiences that would make somebody well-suited to be a police officer in so many respects could also make them more vulnerable well, exactly. When a, when a, yeah, when a trauma happens, and I think that's probably true of psychologists perhaps as, as well, you know, that we, we all have our histories that we bring to the table and some of them does make us well suited. But there's the other side of that too, is how important it is to deal with those early life experiences so we don't carry them over and, and how hard it can be to recognize when we're doing so. Absolutely. I mean, it is not any different for somebody in the helping profession. My guess would
2: be, and this is really, really anecdotal and not scientific, is that people that become cops had more trouble with their fathers, and those of us that went into mental health counseling, we had trouble with our mothers. That's interesting.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the impact of a law enforcement career on a couple in a family and some of the challenges that you've seen these families face. Well, there's
2: a number of them. I call them the, the sort of, there are givens of the job that won't change, that are difficult for families to adapt to, such as shift work. Unpredictable hours, you can be called in and have a vacation ruined because you need to go to court and testify. There can be mandatory overtime. I think that's probably going to be happening now. As officers get sick with the COVID-19, they're going to be out on leave and so Other officers are probably going to have to cover for them, so they're going to be long hours away from home. On both a practical as well as a psychological way, I think many families feel they play second fiddle to the job, that the respect and admiration and the sense of belonging to your work team is more important than at home. I always say that police officers have Uh, And most first responders, I think, they have two families. They get their work family and they have their real family. And they need both. But it's a blessing and a burden because now you've got two families to manage. And when you start putting your work family before your family, your real family, you're in trouble because that work family is ultimately can be very fickle families also will watch the, somebody that they knew and loved and respected change on the job and become maybe more cynical, a little more hard-nosed, have some attitudes that they don't share with the family because cops can think the only person that will understand me is another cop. So they stop talking about things at home. And we tell cops, look, you can t- you, they say all the time, I don't bring my work home. And we tell them, if you think your job doesn't follow you home, you're fooling yourself. Because when you walk in the door, you, we, we call it the face. Your family is looking for the face. They're reading you as hard as they possibly can. They want to know if you are grumpy and irritable. Is it because you're angry at them or did something bad happen at work? If you don't talk about what happened in work, how are they going to know the difference? Now, it's not an all or nothing issue. It's not like you have to tell them about a kid who threw himself in front of a train and how you found his finger down 400 yards down the road in a tree. They don't need to hear that kind of detail. But you need to tell them, look, I saw something today I wish I had never seen. It makes me frightened for my children. I'm in a, a kind of a bad state about it. I need to go up and run around the block. Can you give me 20 minutes? You need to explain yourself. And you need also, as a police officer, not to make a unilateral decision about what to talk about at home and when. Talk this over, before something hits the fan, talk this over with your spouse. Some spouses will say, tell me everything, I, I'm a nurse, I see worse stuff than you do, let me know, I wanna know about it, it interests me. Other spouses will say, I don't wanna hear anything that involves children, I can't deal with it. But if you're married to another adult, so this should be a negotiation, not a unilateral decision made by the officer. The other thing that happens is that the cops, you can't be a cop 24 hours a day because you'll absolutely wear yourself out. But we hear stories from families about how they go out for a nice evening meal at a restaurant and the police officer cannot, they have to sit facing the door. They're constantly scanning the environment to see who's going to come into this restaurant. and Is that going to be okay? And can we trust those people? And they can't be present to their spouse and it's an evening in which they're trying to reconnect with each other so that kind of preoccupation with work the inability to turn it off and shift gears and become dad or son or brother or boyfriend or girlfriend mother whatever we really have to teach them that they have to they have to learn how to shift gears because it's it's not fair to your family to be always on, on the alert and hypervigilant. And sometimes that hypervigilance comes because the officer has had some kind of a traumatic experience. Sometimes it comes simply because they are over-trained and overhabituated and told consistently that if you're not scanning the environment for lethal threats all the time, then uh, you're gonna get hurt or you're gonna get somebody else hurt. What I say to cops, it's a paradox. I call it actually the police officer's paradox. The very skills that make you a good street cop are probably going to damage your home life. To be constantly hypervigilant, to be in a command presence mode and speak to your family and your kids like they're delinquents or they're perpetrators, to have a sense of humor or sarcasm that maybe works okay on the street, but your family will not appreciate it and should not
1: appreciate it. And Ellen, how oh. often do you see domestic violence?
2: People don't report that very often, so we really have no idea. And in my, the first edition of I Love a Cop, I called it the best kept secret shame of policing. So it depends on who you talk to. If you talk to, my colleagues said, look, we think we do a much better job of screening out potential abusers than we have in the past. So when I did a second edition of that book or a third edition of that book, I really uh, did some more research and found out that basically we really don't know. And it also strikes me that abuse is not a monolithic Act, that some people who have been traumatized may be so hyper alert or there may be some kind of stress or issues that are uh, a consequence of the trauma that the abuse happens because of that. Then there's the controlling male privilege kind of abuse. The other, is, I think, any male-dominated, fairly youthful profession, military, construction, farming, commercial fishing, you're going to find more abuse there.
1: I think that's definitely true. I just wonder what options there would be for someone who is a victim of domestic violence if the perpetrator is a police officer in the community.
2: Well, I have one of my psychology today blogs is just about that, sort of a fairly recent one. And I talk about that in in the books, departments are doing a better job that used to be that, you know, you'd have to talk to your abuser's best friend, or your abuser's uncle was the judge in a small rural community or something. So I think there are better organizations and ways of reporting. When the Omnibus Act was um, enacted, I can't remember what year that was, it was hoping to help make reporting police officers for domestic abuse easier. In fact, it's probably had a chilling effect on it because if an officer is convicted of misdemeanor abuse, he or she loses their ability to carry a weapon. If you can't carry a weapon, basically you can't be a cop. So then your abuser, if you're married, then you lose any benefits, health insurance and so forth. So we're not sure that that has helped people report more. I think it, it varies in, in different communities and different departments, how people are taking care of this. In some ways, they have specially trained units to investigate officers rather than leaving that up to somebody that they may work with every day and have a personal relationship with so it's a, it's a tough situation and this i think we're going to see domestic abuse go up all over the place not just in policing with this pandemic and people forced to be with each other who don't really uh, want to be with each other or should be with each other
1: well sadly there have already been some signs i think that at least calls to police agencies have gone up over the past four weeks. So we're almost out of time and I want to end on a positive note because you've gave such great information about some of the progress that's been made in terms of being more aware of when individuals are in trouble, we all go through trouble at times. And certainly when you're in a high stress occupation, a lot of the things that you described are normal. And so I love the idea or love the fact that you're talking about the fact that there's more incorporation of mental health professionals. There's more partnering between law enforcement agencies and mental health professionals. And so I want to ask you the last question, which is what would you want listeners to remember the most about what we've talked about today would be the most important thing from your perspective and understanding the psychology of being a police officer and what that means in terms of their mental health
2: i'm not sure i want them to remember something so much as i want them to think about their own stereotypes about law enforcement and to recognize the kind of overall stress that this job involves and when they interact with a police officer or when they pass one on the street, there's so much negativity in police work that it it really makes a difference. Even though you might not get a response to say to an officer, hi, look him in the eye. Thanks for your work. Thanks for being here. Appreciate what you're doing. The officers are not used to getting this, so you might not get a response back. But I think it would be, if I want anybody to remember something from our conversation today, it would be that these are human beings. They're not stereotypes. They have full lives behind them. They have the same aspirations and hopes and fears and concerns as the rest of us do. And they've chosen to put on this. uniform, which makes them look like uh, everybody else with that same uniform, but they really are individuals and they really do appreciate and need support from the public. I mean, we have to hold them to high standards, no question about that. But to the degree to which we hold them to high standards are the degree to which I think we need to give them support and recognize them as individuals doing a nearly
1: impossible job. That's a great note to end on. And I want to say how much I appreciate the work that you're doing, because it certainly sounds like that you are really a friend to law enforcement and that you really do have a goal of helping them make the most of their, of the rewards of being law enforcement and helping them really learn to reduce and handle those risks. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. You're listening to A Threat of Evidence. We'll see you next time.